Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 20 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Becchione. Welcome to today's episode. The following is a message from Hope for the FASD Journey Community. Hope for the FASD Journey Community is a monthly membership, faith-based support community for parents and caregivers of individuals prenatally exposed to alcohol and other substances. Led by Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast, Two Moms Living the FASD Experience. With more than 40 years of combined adoptive parenting experience, Natalie and Sandra offer abundant knowledge, resources, and hope for families on this journey. Natalie and Sandra are here to support you. Join the community at justicefororphansny.org slash training slash FASD. That's justicefororphansny.org slash training slash FASD. Welcome back to FASD Hope. I have missed today's guest. He is such a resource, such a treasure, um, such an educator, and um, the FASD community, as well as so many other communities, we are blessed to have him as a champion um, educator, as a champion advocate, uh, as a champion researcher. I could go on and on about our, our guest, but I want you to hear from him. So I'm welcoming back Dr. Jared Brown, who has done so many of our All About FASD episodes, which I encourage you to go back and listen to him in every episode we've done with him, um, as well as I'll be sharing contact information at the end of today's session. So with that lengthy introduction, Dr. Jared Brown. Jared, my friend, welcome back to FASD Hope. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. I'm so grateful to be back here and i'm really excited that you're doing your podcast program again that's wonderful thank you thank you so on that extended hiatus i know a lot has happened um let's just talk before we start our conversation about today's topic which is going to be a deep dive into excessive consumption of sugar and i know so many listeners are interested in this topic before we start um let's just pick up on where we left off you know share with us some of the things you've done share with us what's going on with you yeah i guess since we've talked i've been putting a lot of my professional attention into integrative behavioral health a field called psychoneuroimmunology i'll talk a little bit about that today why why i think that might be really helpful to learn about that research and infuse it with fasd and i would say the bulk of what i've been doing the last year is really focusing on the field of neurocriminology because a lot of the work i do involves like the criminal justice system and forensic mental health so neurocriminology 
is pulling together neuroscience research and biochemistry and behavioral genetics and psychophysiology and all kinds of other fields under one umbrella to help better understand problematic, confusing, dangerous, antisocial, violent kinds of behavior. And in that research, they actually talk a lot about nutritional interventions. They talk about how malnutrition, food insecurity, just poor eating habits may be one driver for problematic behavior. They talk about blood sugar dysregulation. And that's one reason why I've been really focusing on the topic of sugar. I've been given lots of talks on it, podcasts. I'm actually putting together a workbook right now. I'm about eight months into it. I should be all done with it in March of 2024. And there'll be a chapter in that workbook on autism and one on FASD amongst all kinds of other topics that just relate to all things sugar. And I became interested in this topic because I've been doing more and more coursework in sugar and like nutrition topics. And I actually obtained a certification, I think sometime last year in like functional nutrition. It's uh, just fascinating to me. And I really do believe that this is one area that is underappreciated in the FASD world. Now there's some articles that talked about nutrition and there's a handful that talk about sugar within this context of FASD, but not a lot. So really understanding nutrition would be helpful, I think. Absolutely, Jared. And Thinking about the the protective factors that we can provide to our children who have uh, been exposed to alcohol prenatally or any other neurobehavioral diagnoses, sugar consumption is something that we can we can control, we can structure, we can regulate. So uh, I'm so happy that we're talking about this today because this is something that parents and caregivers can actually make a difference and, and make changes that they will see not only immediately, but down the road. So I, I'm so thankful you're you're talking about this. Before we start, Jared, how did you become really aware of the need for this topic of talking about excessive consumption of sugar and the relationship, you know, with FASD? And then how does prenatal alcohol exposure really affect the process to metabolize and to process sugar? Before we take this deep dive in this conversation, how did you become aware of this topic and how does prenatal alcohol exposure affect how the body consumes and processes excessive sugar. Yeah, definitely heavy duty topics, but important topics. And I always want to say too, that what we're talking about today is just general education. Don't take this and like make decisions on your own. Talk to your healthcare provider, your medical doctor, your nutritionist before doing anything like this. There's not a lot of research on FASD and sugar and nutrition, but there's a little bit. I became interested in the topic of sugar. Just, I know lots of people that have problematic relationships with sugar. I have worked with many clients over the years that are non-FASD who have like serious mental health issues, drug and alcohol problems. The overwhelming majority of those clients don't eat well. They typically rely on a Western diet, ultra processed food diet. I'll talk about that today. And a lot of them seem to, after they try to quit using drugs or alcohol, 
turn to sugar. I see it all the time. With the FASD stuff, a lot of, I do a lot of consulting with different professionals and groups and so on. And I hear it over and over and over again from caregivers, my own observations that so many people that FASD seem to have problematic relationships with sometimes overeating, eating unhealthy foods. I've worked with many clients that have a really hard time putting on the brakes with not overeating sugar and sugar sweetened beverages. And there's a lot of things that go into that. Why I believe maybe FASD may drive the bus with some of that in some cases. But when you think of FASD, think of prenatal alcohol exposure as again, a whole body based disorder. Most of the time we talk about the brain, which obviously that is very important. But prenatal alcohol exposure has been linked, obviously, to numerous physical deficits, tons of behavioral problems, the cognitive problems, the brain-based stuff, central nervous system issues, HPA access dysfunction, problems with executive function. But it also impacts learning. But it also has an impact on our immune system and our metabolic health and our sleep health and how we respond to stress. So keep them in the back of your mind when we talk about this topic of sugar. Natalie, I mentioned briefly, I've been really focusing a lot of my work on psychoneuroimmunology. This doesn't apply to FASD per se, but I encourage folks, if you want to understand better the mind-body connection, look at psychoneuroimmunology research. Basically, that research looks at how our, bra our brain, how our behavior impact our immune system and vice versa. So if someone's under a great deal of stress, depression, anxiety, even emotional dysregulation, that's been linked to having more inflammation in the body. And when we have more inflammation, we're not thinking well, that can impact our nervous system it can impact our endocrine system, which is related to our hormones. And the HPA access is part of the endocrine system. We've talked a lot about that in other podcasts. And when all this stuff is off, it can impact our gut, our gut health. So keep that in the back of your mind today when we talk about this as well, gut brain health issues. There's some research starting to come out now about FASD and gut health issues. Not a lot. There's tons on autism. There's tons on all kinds of other topics, but if the gut is off, that impacts the brain. If the brain's off, that impacts the gut. There's a bi-directional communication there. So think of psychoneuroimmunology again as how our brain, how our thinking impacts our body and vice versa, but it's also important to consider social factors. People that deal with a lot of isolation or loneliness, it can impact their brain, but it can impact their body. And all of this is interconnected. So it's not like it's in isolation. If someone's dealing with depression or mood problems, it's going to impact their body and vice versa. And sleep is off. And all of these things, when the body's off, it can impact our, our food habits. We may crave more. Sometimes our hormones are off. Sometimes if our hormones are off, depending on what kinds, we may... What do we do in some cases? We may turn to a bunch of sugar because it helps us feel better in the short term, but in the long term, crashes our blood sugars, impacts our mood, impacts everything. 
So that's psychoneuroimmunology in a very brief nutshell. Natalie, do you have any thoughts? Do you want me to go into kind of how FASD plays into all this and what's going on in the body? And Absolutely. And just writing down that definition, Jared, and one of the things that I wrote that I'm, I think I'm going to make some sort of graphic for our listeners is that what you said, if the gut is off, it impacts the brain. And if the brain is off, it impacts the gut. I think that's something, a basic premise that we need to remember in parenting and caregiving our children is that relationship with gut and brain and how it's a flow, you know, it's a circle. So let's take this deep dive into excessive consumption of sugar. My first question is why does the body dramatically crave sugar? And then even more so in individuals living with FASDs. Well, let's look at FASD, what we do know about all of this stuff with like the immune system, the gut, all of these things, what could be going on. So there's some research that's been published on immune system dysfunction. There's a couple articles in the FASD world that have looked at metabolic dysfunction, problems with insulin production, all these things. So what could be going on? So maybe when mom is pregnant, not only maybe was she using alcohol, what other exposures did she have? Was she a tobacco? Tons of caffeine. There's actually a couple articles that have been published in the sugar world that is showing that high levels of consumption of sugar during pregnancy may actually impact that developing child in utero as well. So something to think about. If mom through pregnancy was maybe malnourished, or was she going through some sort of traumas? Was she in a domestic violence situation or in poverty or had diabetes untreated? Whatever mom is going through, again, can impact that developing child in utero. So take into account mom factors. We also need to be aware when we look at this through an immune system lens and all the body and the gut and all those things, what's going on metabolically? There's a couple articles that have shown that prenatal alcohol exposure may have a negative impact on metabolic health. Metabolic health has a lot to do with blood sugar regulation, glucose metabolism dysregulation. A couple articles have looked at that. A couple articles have looked at impaired insulin production and signaling among people that have been exposed to alcohol prenatally. Some factors that may contribute to that is HPA access dysfunction, the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal access. If that's off, that throws off our hormones. If the gut is off, that can have an impact on this. Some articles talk about peripheral nervous system dysfunction and central nervous system dysfunction playing a role in this as well. If all of these things are off, that can contribute to physiological dysregulation in our body. So we need to be aware of what's going on physiologically. Was that child born premature? Premature birth is another variable that's been talked about. After the child is born, what what kind of food are they consuming? Are are they eating nutritious foods? Obviously, a baby is not going to have like solid foods, but are they bottle fed? Are they not having the proper nutrition as they get older, as they start eating solid foods? 
what are they consuming? That has a lot to do with it. And then as they get older, what I've seen, at least in the cases I've consulted on, sedentary behaviors could be a factor. So a lot of cases I consult on, the person lives in a group home. They don't do a lot of movement, not a lot of structured time in some cases. They put on a lot of weight. A lot of times the food they eat in those places may taste good, but they're loaded with carbs and sugar and sodium and things of that nature. Most people with FASD in general have sleep problems. Sleep deprivation over the long haul can drive up inflammation. It can make us crave more sugary foods. Screen time habits is a factor too. If you look at the screen time literature, you take out FASD out of the equation, people that are on the screen for excessive periods of time may be more likely to snack on food that's sugary or high salts, those kind of things. And what happens if the child's born and now they're born into an environment where there's a lot of abuse or chaos? So we have to consider how trauma plays into this and attachment issues. If you look at the adverse childhood experiences research, you'll find a ton of literature that talks about high levels of childhood trauma may impact eating behaviors and increase eating problems later on in life. And it could be a factor for obesity. And some of the reasons for that is it can change your hormones. Be aware of the hormones ghrelin and leptin. We don't have time to get into the weeds on that today. But also for some clients too, with these extensive trauma histories, food is very comforting to them in the short term. It makes their anxiety more manageable, but it comes back full force. So it's kind of almost like an addictive tendency. And then over time, as that person gets older, it can wreak havoc on the brain and body. So that's what might be going on in a nutshell. As you can see, there's a million factors at play. But then what about metabolism? That's another huge topic. Not a lot of literature on metabolism and FASD, but just generally, like, what is metabolism? That's just basically how our bodies kind of process and maintain like energy maintenance, how we break down food into energy. It's a chemical, biological, metabolic process, and it's regulated by the hypothalamus in our brain. And if that is off, if something's not working right with our metabolism, with our hypothalamus, that can change our hunger. We may crave more food when we're, we really don't need it. We may not feel full. It can have a huge impact on our hormone health. And if you look at just the general metabolism literature, there's a million things that can impact our metabolism positively or negatively. Negatively, HPA access dysfunction can throw off our metabolism. Vitamin D deficiency has been linked to more metabolism issues. People that consume a high Western diet, so lots of fast food, lots of processed food, Folks that are obese, sleep apnea, severe mental illness, high levels of caffeine, nicotine, extreme amounts of stress, malnutrition, circadian rhythm misalignment, head trauma, all of these things can have a negative impact on the metabolism. So these are heavy duty, complicated topics, but that is it in a nutshell, unless you want to stay all day long and we'll just keep talking. About this <laughs> well, you know, we could, but I know you and I both have things we need to do. I, I know, Jared, that 
um, you have discussed many times the HPA access dysfunction. And I want to give a shout out not only to Robbie Seal, our friend Robbie Seal, and listening there, she has quite a few episodes that you've done with her about HPA access, but also to our friend Sandra Flack. So um, find those episodes on uh, their respective podcasts. I know, Jared, you've spoken um, quite extensively about the HPA access dysfunction and and all of everything that you're covering in this previous question. So we talked before we started recording and we said this is really a deep dive into excessive sugar consumption and FASD. So let's start with, I would say, we would think would be the first level of functioning, which would be physical. You talked about it in this past question. How does excessive sugar consumption affect and is such a detriment to physical health? Yeah. So excessive sugar consumption, just think of it as a threat to our overall health and wellness and not just physical, but emotional, behavioral, physical. In some cases, high levels of sugar over a long period of time have been linked to having higher levels of non-communicable diseases. Non-communicable diseases are more chronic diseases. Typically they result from a combination of like physiological, environmental, behavioral, and genetic factors. But some of the main types of non-communicable diseases are going to be cardiovascular issues, certain kinds of cancers, diabetes, but some, these non-communicable diseases are often influenced by like not just excessive sugar consumption, but is the person using tobacco products? Are they drinking tons of alcohol? Are they not ever exercising? Are they around a lot of air pollution? That's been talked about in this literature. And then what are their other eating habits like as well? From a neuroscience lens, so excessive sugar consumption and diets that are rich in lots and lots of fat have been linked to maybe having some more issues in the area of the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, the nucleus accumbens, lots of things to think about with the brain. So let's say the hippocampus is off. That has a lot to do with memory. If it impacts the prefrontal cortex, that can impact thinking, decision-making, reasoning, problem-solving, and the list goes on. We know that prenatal alcohol exposure in general can damage parts of those brains that are responsible for that. So adding tons and tons of sugar into one's diet, that just kind of can put fuel on the fire. And we know, just take FASD out of the equation. The research is very clear that most Americans consume way more sugar than what's recommended by like the lots of organizations that focus on these topics. Sugar is really embedded everywhere in foods. It obviously sugar sweetened beverages is a big topic, but some people think, oh, we're drinking 100% fruit juice. That must be better. Again, I'm not giving any nutritional advice, but just look at the sugar in 100% fruit juice or chocolate milk, or look at how much sugar is in ketchup or barbecue sauce, or even the cereals you eat like granolas, or if you rely on a lot of canned fruits or some canned soups, look at the sugar in there. They sneak sugar in everything, energy drinks, 
I've worked with many clients that seem to have an addictive tendency to energy drinks as well. That's a whole nother can of worms. And sugar has so many names attached to it. There are so many products that have this fancy name, but it's actually sugar. I don't even know how many there are at this point, but just being aware that sugar has many names, learning about the dangers of sugar is going to be very, very important for improving overall health and wellness. And one other thing I'll say about that, Natalie, is in the sugar literature, not not the FASD literature per se, but in the sugar literature, it comes up a lot. Is sugar truly addictive like cocaine or alcohol or tobacco or nicotine? Some articles say yes, some say no, some say maybe. But I'm convinced, I'm under the camp that is it a full-blown addictive disorder? It's definitely habit-forming. I can see that in so many people. It can alter their mood. They seem to have more cravings when they don't have it. And they may have like physiological responses when they're not getting it. So it seems like they're almost withdrawing from it. So those are some characteristics of just other kinds of addictions. So just something to, to take into account when we're, when we're thinking of that particular topic. I'll keep going deeper on some of those, Natalie, if you want, or if you have any questions. I I, I do. And, and actually, you gave me a great topic for a future um, conversation with energy drinks, because I know I have so many fellow parents who have talked about our, our teens and young adults just gravitating to those, you know, energy drinks, which we know can be so detrimental in general, but especially detrimental to our, our loved ones with FASD. Um, can I give a teaser for that right now? Absolutely. Please do. So energy drinks, I know a lot about that because I just gave a talk to a group recently about the impact of sugar-sweetened beverages on college students. And in preparing for that talk, I read through tons and tons of articles related to energy drink consumption. And I was shocked to learn that people who consume high amounts of energy drinks, I'm not talking like one here and there, typically will have more insomnia. It's been linked to more mental health problems, obesity issues, more sedentary behaviors. It's also been linked to higher usage of video games and screen time. And there are some articles in the energy drink world that talk about oftentimes people that have like an addictive tendency to energy drinks, they oftentimes also use alcohol, e-cigarettes, marijuana and other kinds of drugs and some of the folks that are in college who use high amounts of energy drinks the research shows that they oftentimes use it in conjunction with alcohol at the same time can you imagine someone with fasd who has an fasd brain they sh obviously having energy drinks is terrible in my opinion but now they're having energy drinks mixed with alcohol that is a dangerous combo oh i can just picture the body just going haywire from all of that caffeine, sugar, everything in an energy drink, and then going plummeting to the what's happening with alcohol. So anyone who's listening, one of our future discussions will definitely be about energy drinks and FASD and, and NB diagnoses, because um, we are experiencing that, you know, personally uh, with, with our son, 
who's now a young adult, um, he is consuming them more and it's it's a rabbit hole. It leads to so many things and people don't realize it. So I'm, I'm glad that you're talking about that, Jared. That's definitely going to be a future conversation. Of I appreciate of bringing that up. Yeah, it's such an important topic that I'm not aware of any article ever published in the FASD world that's looked at energy drinks and the impact on the FASD brain. There might be, but I've never come across one. But I can tell you, I've consulted on enough cases where the person, a lot of folks seem to like those sugar-sweetened beverages and some, the energy drinks as well. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We can talk at a later time, but it is something that comes up frequently. Absolutely. So now let's talk about most parents and caregivers whether their child has a, a neurobehavioral condition or whether their child is neurotypical, most of us know we we have this underlying knowledge of the detrimental effects of sugar consumption, especially excessive sugar consumption. Um, let's talk about how it exponentially is more detriment to our kids and teens and loved ones with an FASD when it comes to cognitive and behavioral health? Well, again, not a, not a lot of literature to guide us, but anecdotally and what I've heard in cases I've consulted on in some cases, let's say the person is consuming tons and tons of sugar, maybe through sugar sweetened beverages that spikes their blood sugars very high, and then it can crash them. And if you look at just some of the literature pertaining to like low blood sugar levels, higher levels of irritability, it can impact mood, behavior, cognition. It can impact our sleep. It can impact our just drive to do things. And over the long haul, again, that can be a huge threat to our emotional and behavioral health. What I've seen anecdotally too, we know that people with FASD already deal with a high degree of self-control, self-regulation deficits. In a lot of cases, that could negatively impact and even make their self-control deficits worse. There's a case I consulted on recently where the person had suspected FASD on top of that, a head, head injury. And this person had absolutely no impulse control around tobacco caffeine or sugar and this person had type 2 diabetes they just did not take care of themselves so low self-control within the context of unhealthy eating habits have been linked to so many problems i wish there were articles to guide us in the fasd world there's just not so any researchers listening to this great topic to explore what i would recommend there's quite a bit in the autism literature and the ADHD world about this stuff. But looking at this through a self-control, self-regulation lens might be helpful. Helping strengthen self-control might help that person put on the brakes more with making better decisions around their eating habits, when they go to bed, their financial decision-making, even their fluid consumption habits and their tobacco habits and driving and communication habits. If you can teach people self-control and self-regulation, they're in a much better position to put the brakes on, pause and reflect, and think through their actions. It is difficult for an FASD brain to do that without a lot of guidance and support. And if you add on 
tons of sugar, lack of sleep, not a lot of exercise. It just makes all of the underlying issues worse and worse and worse. And now what happens if the person with FASD is also dealing with chronic stress, which is very common? They may not know how to name or label those emotions. Maybe they have alexithymia where there's an emotional block. So they can't get all of that stress out. They can't come to mom or dad or their friends and say, I'm scared, I'm worried, I'm afraid. All those emotions go into their body, which then can increase health problems. In some cases, if you look at just the general chronic stress literature, untreated chronic stress can increase blood pressure issues. It can throw off our blood sugar levels. It can impact our food cravings. It impacts our digestion. It can suppress our immunity. It can drive up autoimmune problems and sleep issues, just to name a few. So again, this is a whole body-based disorder. Looking at the general literature on these things, it's scary. I Again, I wish we had more data in the FASD world, but from what I hear from you, Natalie, you've experienced this. Lots of people I talk to who have raised a child with FASD say these same things over and over, and I observe this all the time in the cases I consult on. Yes. And I think just from my parent uh, living experience, I think one of the things that is so challenging is how easily accessible foods, treats, drinks with excessive sugar, with a lot of sugar are available to our, our kids, our teens, our loved ones. Yet the healthy things, the things that, you know, are like a, a good substitution, the high protein things, the, the high nutrient things, those are not easily available. And then if you think about, you know, disparity and, and those living in, in low socioeconomic neighborhoods, it's even magnified even more. So it's it's really it saddens me and and hearing stories from other parents how it's so easy to to go in and get uh you know an energy drink or to go in and get a candy bar or go in and get soda versus hey you know i'm i'm going to go pick up a banana or i'm going to go pick up something with some you know protein in it um i i think that's one of the many reasons why our our kids they crave that more because it's more accessible versus um, healthy, nutritional uh, types of, of meals, types of snacks. Um, what, what do you think it's about tough. that, Jared? It's yeah. tough. It's a battle I think our society is losing, not just FASD. I mean, just it, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, all right, I'll, I'll put it out there. You go to the hospital and right. on the first floor, you got fast food joints in there. I see that yeah. frequently. You go to school, like college, I mean, vending machines everywhere, cafeterias that have all these great tasting foods that are just loaded with sugar. And sometimes parents might use a, a soda or a candy bar as a reward and ordering out fast food frequently because you're just so tired. I, I understand it's hard. It's a battle we are losing. During the era of COVID-19, several studies showed that Fast food consumption went up. Sugar went up. Of course it did. We were all nervous, stressed out. It helps us feel better in the short term. But what that can do over the long term to our bodies, it wreaks havoc on our brain and body. And to someone with FASD, 
could it wreak even more havoc because of these underlying issues? What I see is probably, yeah, absolutely. So what I, I'm convinced is parents do a wonderful job with all of the things like attachment and trauma-informed parenting and sensory processing and language and equine therapy and arts therapy and animal-assisted, all those are so, so important. So often when I consult with different groups, the nutrition factor and the sleep factor and the gut factor are never on the radar. Make them on the radar. Why not? You'd have nothing to lose consulting with a doctor about those things or a nutritionist. And there are some articles in the FASD world that talk about nutrition interventions might be worth trying. But again, don't do it without talking to a healthcare provider. Everyone is so wired differently biochemically and genetically. Maybe someone has a food allergy. Maybe someone has problems with gluten intolerance. I mean, all those things, you got to rule those things out. And But you have nothing to lose because if you can eat a really healthy diet, you're supporting resilience at a cellular level. If we can build up our cellular health, that has profound impacts on our whole body, our whole body health as well. It's not just nutrition, it's getting good sleep, it's exercise, being around positive people, doing all the other wonderful things that parents do and doing, having a counselor, therapist, psychiatrist, case manager, that multidisciplinary team. But would that multi-FASD disciplinary team benefit from having a nutritionist as part of that team or a functional medicine specialist. I think so. I don't know why you wouldn't. That's just Absolutely. me. But... Absolutely. And when you think about other um, other healthcare systems and other uh, healthcare plans, you know, for other diagnoses, nutrition is, is often included in those treatment teams. So yeah, I think having nutrition, having those on your radar I think definitely will address and um, support having kind of built-in protective factors, you know, in in how you're um, how you're taking care of your child. So, um, I one thing that I want to talk about before we start um, wrapping up our conversation um, is the effect of excessive consumption of sugar on emotional health with individuals with FASD. I know you t- you spoke about alexithymia, which you've gone into on Robbie's co- podcast as well as um, Sandra's podcast. Does excessive sugar consumption, does that even make alexithymia even more problematic a- a- in addition to other emotional health issues? Don't know with certainty on that one because there's not published studies, but there are some studies that talk about if someone had alexithymia, they may be more likely to make worse health choices because they, again, have a hard time connecting the dots with how they're feeling. And it can be a barrier with their healthcare provider because if you can't name your emotions and you go to your healthcare provider and they ask, how are you feeling? And you always say, you're great even though inside you're under so much distress, you got headaches, back pain, stomach aches, you can't sleep well, that's a barrier. There's some, there's lots of studies that show that excessive sugar consumption in children can absolutely impact mood and behavior. There's quite a bit of literature in the ADHD world as well. So can it impact mood and behavior? Absolutely. Tons of studies support that. 
specific to FASD, not so much, but we see it all the time anecdotally in case study accounts. And there are some studies specific to the HPA axis that show that high amounts of sugar can contribute to HPA access kind of dysfunction. And when the HPA access is off, again, that's been linked to higher levels of anxiety, insomnia, mood swing issues, depression, the list goes on and on and on. And with sleep too, we know people that FASD don't sleep well in general, high levels of sugar have been linked to more sleep problems. So then that can exacerbate mood chronic sleep deprivation without a doubt can impact mood and our whole bodies. And my, just my opinion, sleep is number one to health. You have to get your sleep under control. That's the foundation. Some people may disagree, but I think that's number one to health by far. If someone's chronically sleep deprived, targeting that can be very helpful. And there's actually a good handful of studies on FASD and sleep. So people can go online and find those as well. And I think we've done a podcast on sleep. If not, I've done it with Robbie, but I've done, people can find the sleep one online there too as well. So one other thing I'll say that's just popped in my head is breakfast consumption. There's a lot of literature on the benefits of consuming breakfast every day. And there's a lot of literature that talks about the consequences of skipping breakfast every day. Might want to look into that. It's not FASD specific, but it's fascinating what some of the research shows in terms of if people just skip breakfast every day and go right to school, what that does to blood sugar, what that does to learning and their brain. And again, not giving any nutritional advice, talk to your healthcare professional, but just be aware of that. And I know we're doing a future podcast episode, you mentioned, Natalie, on neurocounseling. Yes. Just give a teaser for that, too. In the neurocounseling research, and I'll talk about this in that future podcast, there's something called therapeutic lifestyle changes. This is an approach that like counselors should and can use. And therapeutic lifestyle changes pops up in the neurocounseling literature a lot. And it's really focusing on improving nutrition weight management strategies, sleep improvement strategies, exercise, and screen time reduction are like the big five that fall under therapeutic lifestyle changes. Not specific to FASD, but it's helpful for any human being, I think, if you start understanding therapeutic lifestyle changes. Absolutely. And it sounds like there are accommodations that we can build into improving lifestyle and improving those those health factors. Um, Jared, one thing that you mentioned about breakfast, I've noticed too, especially as our son grew older, that making breakfast filled with protein really helps. You know, so often we think breakfast and some folks will think or cereal or anything. No, you know, having those eggs, having those meat proteins, having protein in breakfast from Again, like you said, this is, we're not medical professionals. We're just giving, um, we're just sharing what we know. But from my um, personal perspective as a mom with both of my children, incorporating good protein and fiber into um, breakfast, I find that that helps more with just overall daily functioning. Would, Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, the research, I mean, it really feeds our neurotransmitters and then it helps brain really boost brain power. So it's been linked to having better memory, more alertness, better concentration. It's actually been linked to better problem solving and emotional regulation skills with having healthy breakfast consumption in general. How does this apply to the FASD community? It's tough to say with certainty because there's no studies that I'm aware of that have looked at skipping breakfast and the impact on the FASD brain, but we need studies in that area. I would be shocked to find out that it would not make things worse if someone consistently skipped breakfast or maybe every day for breakfast, they're just pounding down a sugar-sweetened beverage before they go to school. Bad combination in my opinion, but if you eat a healthy diet, I mean, just think of how you feel. If you eat fast food every day, Versus if you eat a Mediterranean-based diet every day, do you feel any different? Well, I can tell you with certainty when I changed my diet several years ago with my wife, we went from just eating standard American food to kind of a Mediterranean-based diet. Energy went up, lost weight, slept better, anxiety went down astronomically, just my mood was better, just personal experience with changing a diet and getting rid of all processed stuff and getting rid of tons of sugar, all that. But yeah. who doesn't like that stuff? I mean, I love fast food, but I haven't touched it in years. So Yeah. When you do, you almost feel hungover. You know, honestly, I, I know that when I go and I, you know, have a overindulge in something, you know, say, for example, um, fried ice cream from our favorite Mexican restaurant. That sounds I, awesome. I, it, it's awesome in the moment. It's yes. awesome in the moment. But then you feel kind of hungover. You get that sugar crash and you get that just, uh, you know, bloated. without a doubt. I know you're the feeling, even if, yeah, you deviate a little bit, if you eat yeah. really healthy. Yeah. If you deviate. Yeah. All those yeah. feelings come back, at least for me, too. So it's hard to. You need to stay consistent, probably, if you're going to keep yes. it up. But it's yes. hard. It's, I mean, it takes a lot of intentionality. And for someone with an FASD brain, asking them to do that on their own, yeah, that's tough. Which is why we need to build that structure in early. We need to build yeah. that nutritional structure and nutritional, um, I would say, accommodations even. Those nutritional accommodations in early so that they are they are built in, they are wired in. And I can give you a quick example with, with our daughter. Um, again, she does have a, a, an NB condition um, and we get together with our homeschool friends and we like to go out for ice cream every once in a while. And she is actually allergic to corn. So she cannot have anything with high fructose corn syrup in it, which is in everything, including medicines, high fructose corn syrup is in everything. So we often find these little creameries that, you know, they use all natural products. Well, one day we were meeting our friends and the ice cream place was closed. And, you know, in a panic, our, my, my, um, my friend said, you know, what do we do? And I thought, you know, we always have at least one box of frozen chocolate bananas in our freezer. So I said, okay, let's just grab that and go. And we brought it to the park. And my daughter said, you know, mom, I actually like those better than ice cream. And <laughs> that right there was a huge win. So I think making those little substitutions, you know, chocolate covered, these are, you know, healthy, they're, um, 
they're the sugar content is is relatively low, especially compared to you know ice cream. And you're getting the nutritional be- benefits of dark chocolate, of bananas. Um, I think making those swaps and starting to make those swaps um, are good ways to start incorporating taking out that sugar, that excessive sugar and replacing it with, okay, here's some natural sugar, but there's also some protein, there's some fiber, there's nutritional value. What are some other examples, Jared, or resources that you can share with our listeners to start making those healthier changes? Self-compassion literature might be helpful. Journaling could be helpful learning about the research on health literacy and nutritional literacy would highly be recommended. If you increase your health literacy and nutritional literacy, you get better at making more informed choices. You can read labels more effectively, understand portion sizes more effectively as well. And I've given a lot of talks recently on sugar sweetened beverages. And in that literature, it talks about tons of interventions that people can use to help. And this could be applied to really anything, I think, but self-regulation training, executive functioning interventions, obviously consulting with a nutritionist, metacognition training is recommended in terms of eating healthier and making better decisions. I've talked about metacognition at times. That is thinking about thinking and knowing about knowing. Reducing screen time may actually lead to better outcomes in terms of our eating habits. Providing psychoeducation to just education and training to families and professionals about this can be very helpful. Improving self-efficacy has been linked to improved outcomes. So helping people just have a greater belief and confidence in themselves, promoting emotional intelligence, focusing on like positive psychological interventions like optimism, gratitude, resilience, strengths-based approaches, and reducing sedentary behaviors are just some things you could look at, study, consult with other people who know this topic, maybe get a workbook on some of these topics, look at some of the other podcasts I've done with you and the other folks in the FASD world. And so those would be just a few things to consider. Those are great resources, and I will definitely share them in our social media notes. Jared, I know you've been putting out more webinars, more discussions, um, especially about these topics. How can folks access or learn more or or sign up? Um, Please share away, because I know, especially in the past six months, you've just done so much related not only to today's topic, but to other topics. How can folks resource, get in touch with you, um, find out more about uh, these lessons, these important educational um, resources that, that are out there? by you. You can share my email. That'd probably be the starting point. And then you can just go online and Google my name and type in podcast or FASD or on all these topics or go on YouTube. You'll find all kinds of podcasts on tons of related topics. And you shoot me an email. I always get back to folks too. I can send you links to different things and try to point you in the right direction. But again, I can't give nutritional advice, but I can just point you in the right direction. 
Absolutely. And again, just to reiterate what we're talking about today, we're just we're sharing resources, we're information um, sharing. This is not, you know, any medical or clinical advice. Um, however, this is helpful resources in the directions where, like, like you said, Jared, where we can point you to where you can find more and learn more. Jared, I'm so happy that you're talking with us about not only today's topic, but just about so many aspects of what we need to be aware of and be cognizant of in our FASD journeys. Um, let's end on hope. You always are so encouraging to listeners. Um, what final words of hope do you have about not only today's topic, but about um, our FASD journeys in general? There's more and more awareness about FASD. There's more trainings. There's more articles being published. There are more studies that are looking at this through an integrative lens. So those would be some things to consider. Reach out to me too. I'm really dedicating the next year or so on just digging into these topics on a deep level. And I want to share this. I love sharing it with folks. So I will definitely pass this along. Hopefully, if everything goes as planned, I'll have that workbook out by March of next year, April of next year. It's all things sugar. So hopefully that will incorporate some things. And I'm hoping that can be a good resource to professionals and caregivers and organizations as well. And I know, Natalie, we're hoping to take deeper dives into a lot of these topics. So hopefully just by having all of you become more informed and increasing your awareness on these things, then you can take this information and maybe talk to your healthcare provider, advocate for yourself and hopefully live a healthier, happier life. That's my goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jared, it is always a pleasure having you on FASD Hope. Thank you for joining us today. Always honored to be here. Thank you, Natalie, and welcome back. And thank you for all the great work you're doing. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Becchione. Make sure you don't miss a single episode by liking and following FASD Hope anywhere you find your podcasts. Remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.